There are lots of ways to connect learning to the experiences that we are all having, and we should be doing that with a caring heart, with a um, an understanding of the broader goals that we're seeking, and let go of the trappings that get in the way of that approach to this moment in human history. If you've tuned into a State Board of Education meeting lately, or some of Governor Newsom's noontime press conferences, or other state-level education updates and webinars, that's a voice you surely recognize. It's Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, nationally eminent education researcher and president of the California State Board of Education. This week on Adventures in Ed Funding, the podcast series presented by CASBO, we're excited to check in with Linda to see what's on her mind as plans for the new school year continue to take shape. Plus, we'll talk about the role we all play in providing social-emotional supports to students and the new learning continuity plans that districts are required to complete before October. Linda recently wrote an article for Forbes called The Urgency of Reopening Schools Safely. It discussed what other countries are doing to reopen their school campuses and made the compelling case that where those reopenings have succeeded, governments have been responsive to addressing the significant financial needs. Welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be with you. My name is Paul Richman, and I'm your masked guide. Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond was appointed by Governor Newsom to the State Board of Education in February 2019. Previously, she had served as the chair of the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing. Her full bio might take a whole episode to read. She's a professor emeritus at Stanford University, president of the Learning Policy Institute, which is a national policy and research nonprofit, and she is foremost among the nation's educational researchers, with more than 500 publications and several books under her belt. She began her career as a public school teacher. And Linda, thank you so much for making time to join us. I, I actually wanted to start out with a bit more of a personal question, because I'm sure when you took on the role of State Board of Education president, you could not have possibly imagined the type of crisis that we'd be going through as a state and as a nation and globally. And I know people appreciate the thoughtfulness that you and Governor Newsom bring to your leadership, but I wanted to ask on a more personal level, how are you holding up through all this and what keeps you going? Well, you know, I think what keeps me going is the inspiration I get from the educators in this state. It has been really unbelievable the extent to which people have stepped up with compassion and caring, you know, figuring out how to get meals to families, how to get devices and Wi-Fi and con connectivity where there wasn't any before, how to, you know, retool pedagogically to, you know, teach in ways that many people haven't tried to teach before. Um, it's been just remarkable. And we were one of the first states to say we are going to engage in distance learning 
That's part of what we're going to do. Learning is non-negotiable. A lot of states just kind of turned off the lights, you know, and closed the door for the duration. Californians took on a really challenging situation with some of the highest infection rates in the country uh, and with the commitment to some of the largest population of low-income students, English learners, you know, students with a diverse set of needs, and people are trying to figure it out and making a lot of headway. Obviously, there's so much more work to be done, but are you feeling reasonably okay with, you know, how things are going so far? Well, we know that there are great disparities. We know that we had a digital divide that was even bigger than the digital divide in many other states, that, you know, we have a lot of needs. We have a lot of kids who are homeless, you know, and we have a lot of kids who are in situations that are very precarious, a big loss of employment among parents, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot to worry about. Um, there are big equity gaps that we are seeing and confronting. But I do think that when we start the school year, we're going to see a lot of um, organized distance learning, as well as in class learning in the places that are enabled to do that right now, that we're going to see people better prepared. A lot of professional development has been going on, a lot of structuring of online platforms, a lot of thoughtfulness about how people can support students with disabilities, English learners, and others who may need additional supports. I think we will still see some inequality because there's more uh, challenges to be overcome, but we will see quite a bit of high quality distance learning and support and innovative hybrid learning across the state. Mm -hmm. And you wrote recently in a Forbes article about how other countries have been able to get their students back to school, back to campus more quickly, but they did that in part because they had a lot more government support. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, there's a lot that needs to be done to get students back to school. First of all, you do have to have um, reasonable rates of infection that are lower than what we have in many parts of the state. So uh, it does not make sense to jump into in-person learning uh, without that. Our infection rates are 100 times greater than those in Denmark and Norway and more than 500% greater than those in any country that has schools open, if you just look at the national average in the United States. So we will have places that can reopen schools safely with the right supports, but those governmental supports mean personal protective equipment, uh, masks uh, and or face shields you know, for everyone uh, in the school, uh, it's going to require more cleaning and disinfecting and custodial services that occur on buses and in playgrounds and in high-touch places throughout the school building on a regular basis. It's going to require physical distancing, which in some cases means finding additional space beyond the classroom space we currently have. Uh, and it may mean additional staff to organize that physical distancing. There 
is um, a need for testing and tracking that is very widespread, readily available, uh, carefully managed. And in many cases, countries have actually hired people in the schools to be in charge of all that, to make sure all these pieces are working well, to do the engagement with testing, tracking, quarantining students or staff who are found to either be infected or have been in contact with someone who was infected. So the governments of the countries that are open and managing well have made a lot of investment. The other thing, of course, is sanitizers and hand-washing stations, and you can't just use the bathrooms that you currently have if you don't have enough um, time and space to group people out because you don't want people clustering. So all of that is really important for governments to be prepared to do. In our case, we have an economic crisis on top of the public health crisis. States cannot engage in deficit spending. So the federal government is the uh, partner that has to step up to make all that possible. And I think you wrote that so far with, with all of the federal relief dollars that have been made available, less than 1% has been specifically directed to support education in the states? That's right. Less than one half of 1% so far. Um, And very little being discussed right now in the act that's being considered in the Senate. Um, Not nearly enough to make up for both the loss of state revenue for education and the additional needs for these services and supports. I have to ask one more question about your article because it it started out seeming to offer some Twitter advice to our president. And I know you already wear a lot of hats. Is, is that another <laughs> position that you're looking for? I'm not the world's best tweeter, you know, but uh, <laughs> yes, I offer him advice. I, he had tweeted that Uh, You know, he named some countries like Denmark and Norway and Germany are open. Our schools should all be open. Otherwise, no funding. And I did advise him about what his tweet should have said, which is that some countries, uh, a few countries have opened up schools with very big changes in how they operate. And then uh, because I'm now learning about the 140 characters, uh, a second tweet to urge passage of the federal Recovery Act with at least $200 billion for education to allow for those things to happen. Well, we appreciate whenever you can find the time to help fact check a certain someone's tweets about education. And we'll provide a link in our online show notes to Linda's most recent article, which her Learning Policy Institute colleague, Hannah Melnick, also contributed to. I also want to pause and underscore a number Linda mentioned. With close to $2.8 trillion in federal aid devoted to the recovery so far, only $13 billion has been allocated specifically to K-12 education. That's less than half of 1% of the total funding, on average about $286 per student. As Linda wrote, that's nowhere near what's needed to enable a safe return to in-person school. This seems like a good time, too, to say that if you have not yet contacted your congressional representatives 
to let them know just how vital additional funding for states and schools is in the next stimulus package. The time is now. So go ahead, make a note to call or email or tweet right now. We'll hold on. Did you call or email yet? Please don't forget, we'll also have more about the status of the federal relief package on an upcoming episode, and you can find more details on the CASBO website. If there is one thing more than any others that you would want everybody in the education community and, and in local communities, parents, students, families, to take most to heart during these times, what might that be? Well, I think there are uh, several things. One is that, you know, we will get through this. Uh, you know, human history has many, many moments where, you know, uh, very um, intense and difficult things happen. Uh, we are all learning all the time. And while there's legitimate concern about learning loss, we should be assured that children are learning. It's what they're learning that's changing. It may not be the formal curriculum as we know it, but in every interaction we have with young people and with each other as adults in the system, um, you know, bringing caring to the table, bringing compassion to the table, uh, bringing an ear and a capacity to listen and support and respond to the table is going to be as important as getting back to the standardized curriculum as we have known it. Uh, you know, kids can learn in part by having opportunities to write about their experiences, to tell their story, to understand the pandemic itself. There are lots of ways to connect learning to the experiences that we are all having, and we should be doing that with a caring heart, with a, an understanding of the broader goals that we're seeking, and let go of the trappings that get in the way of that approach to this moment in human history. And when you say trappings, what can you speak a bit more about that? Well, you know, we, we have a very hyper-regulated education system in this country. We've got standardized tests. We've got pacing guides. We've got all kinds of tools and worries. We've had an accountability system that, since No Child Left Behind, was organized around, you know, uh, creating anxiety about increases in, in test scores as sort of the focus of a lot of efforts in schools. Um, and I am not opposed to assessment. I think assessment is very important, and I have advocated for us to use thoughtful, formative assessments to figure out where kids are and continue to move them along. But those are not the most important elements of learning, education, and human development. And we should uh, first take care of people and second, enable them to learn in authentic ways that are meaningful and over time figure out what supports and trappings, if you will, are the most helpful in getting the kind of 
critical thinking, problem solving, and skills mastered by students as what we really most need. And taking care of people, uh, I know that you've been a, a champion for a long time for what we call social emotional learning, uh, focusing on students' SEL needs. And especially we know that's going to be more important than ever when school starts up again this year. A lot of folks in our audience are maybe school leaders or officials who aren't necessarily in the classroom, but do all the support and operational work. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how they can support social emotional learning for students in their districts. Um, First of all, we ought to think about the beginning of school as a time when kids are coming back, whether they're coming back virtually or whether they're coming back in person or whether it's a blend of both, um, coming into communities where there is um, an opportunity for them to get to know each other and the adults in their environment and all of the adults matter, whether they are classroom teachers or whether they are involved in the various things that are needed to keep schools uh, organized and operating and funded and all of those kinds of things. We should see a couple of weeks of just, you know, really creating community, building community norms, finding out what kids need. There are going to be needs for all kinds of adjunct services that your members are involved in. How do we get the IT supports to that kid's household because they might have a computer but can't figure out how to set it up? How do we figure out which kids are having food insecurity and need uh, more access to meals in a way that's accessible? What do we do about kids who have health issues that need attention? All of those things, in addition to instruction, directly call upon the people in school systems who have to figure out the funding, have to figure out the management of the services, uh, the transportation, the delivery of things that kids and families need to them and to the staff. And I think understanding the importance of these social and emotional components of learning and support and being prepared to really help deliver on that set of concerns and promises will be extremely valuable. So in many ways, those uh, not directly in the classroom really play an integral part in supporting SEO. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the social and the emotional part and the physical health and mental health part of what kids need um, is very much supported by the range of folks from facilities and maintenance and nutrition and transportation to technology to human resources to finance. Uh, And we are grateful to them for it, and they will be important in making that happen. I think one of the things this pandemic crisis has shown as well is just how many moving parts there are to a successful school operation. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people have the image of, you know, teachers in classrooms, and that's school, and that's a hugely important part of the heart of schooling, but there's so much more that goes into supporting those teachers and those kids to do that teaching and learning work. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I wanted to ask you just one more question. I know as part of the uh, state budget, um, districts are going to be required to uh, seek community input and develop and approve what we're calling local continuity plans. Uh, and those have to be done by the end of September, which I know talking to people in the field, that feels like a pretty tight timeline. I was wondering from your perspective, if there's one or two things that you hope that these plans will most help achieve? Uh, you know, there it is a big, uh, big order, and um, there's a lot being asked for in those plans, and my heart goes out to everyone who is working hard to respond <laughs> to that request. I think that very important is thinking through sort of a curriculum approach that can operate with everyone kind of understanding it, uh, both inside and outside of the brick and mortar classroom, because we're going to be in and out of distance learning and hybrid learning and in-person learning almost everywhere all year long. And we don't want to go through what we went through in the spring where everybody said, oh my gosh, now we're not in brick and mortar schools and we've got to figure out how to get kids the devices they need, the curriculum information they need about what to be doing and how to be doing it and so on. So that's one of the main points of those continuity plans. Uh, you know, in places like Miami, where they have hurricanes and floods every year and they are in and out of schools, they created these kind of continuity plans before many of the rest of us had thought about it. And the main thing is how will everyone get the devices that they need and the connectivity, you know, what's the plan for that? How can they go online and figure out what they should be doing and uh, studying? What's the plan for that? And then how do we support students with disabilities, English learners or others who need particular supports so that there's not a huge gap in their ability to continue to learn as well? I think that's the most important piece of the continuity plan uh, from the perspective of, of keeping learning going and not experiencing more learning loss than we need to. Well, and then it sounds like they are aptly named because continuity seems to be the emphasis. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, thank you so much for, for joining us. Is there anything else that you want to highlight or add? Uh, I will only add my gratitude to all of the people in our schools who are keeping things going and working under so much challenge, unpredictability, um, and duress, and doing it with such creativity and commitment uh, is you know, greatly appreciated. I think people all across the state in many, many roles have a renewed appreciation for what everyone in schools does to hold our communities together, to hold our families together, and to contribute to the well-being of, of everyone else in the state. So I want to kind of leave us with those words of collective thanks. Excellent. Well, and, and we join in thanking you and, and the governor for your leadership. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Well, that's going to do it for now. As always, we appreciate your joining us for Adventures in Ed Funding, the series presented by CASVA, 
the California Association of School Business Officials. Check out the website at casbo.org for a listing of the many timely updates and premier professional development offerings. And while you're online, be sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already done so. Did you know that since we launched this series in February, we've now produced more than 25 episodes. You can find them all on the Casbo site or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also share your feedback and ideas for future topics by emailing me, Paul Richmond, at edfundingca at gmail.com. Many thanks again to our special guest, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, and thank you as always to Tommy Dunbar, who handles our music, sound, and editing. Until we talk again, keep focusing on continuity, bringing compassion to the table, and have I mentioned yet about contacting those federal representatives? Take us out, Tommy. Tommy.